This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Just Another Hole in the Wall. And my guest is the writer and star of a sitcom that was so popular, it outstripped EastEnders in the ratings. Apparently, after EastEnders, so many kettles are turned on that Britain has to borrow power from France. Next thing you know, we'll be borrowing their fish. The world's first ever sitcom was called Pinwright's Progress, and it aired on the BBC from 1946 to 47. It was actually filmed near me, round the corner at Alexandra Palace, back when that was home to BBC Studios. And then the first US sitcom was called Mary Kay and Johnny, and it aired a year later, and it followed the lives of New York newlyweds. In the 1964 general election, Harold Wilson managed to persuade the BBC to delay a repeat of the sitcom Steptoe and Son until after the polls had closed. He later said that the increased turnout swung the balance in a dozen marginal seats, thereby winning the election for Labour. If only we had such a stunt to pull these days. The prop painting from the 1980s sitcom Allo Allo, The Fallen Madonna with the Big Boobies, sold for £15,000 in 2018. The buyer was from the small French town of Novion, where the show is set. Since it first aired in 1994, NBC's Friends is one of the most watched sitcoms ever in all the world, and it's cast some of the highest paid actors in television history. But it wasn't always going to be called Friends. The original title was Insomnia Cafe. Hmm, catchy. And the most watched ever series finale wasn't actually Friends, but MASH in 1983. And I actually remember watching that and having a little cry. And it was followed 10 years later in second place by Cheers when it aired its final in 1993. I guess its final episode, one would say, otherwise it sounds like a football match. Ah, sorry. Got you now. Sorry about that. Jesus. Don't know what happened there. You okay? That's my guest today, Tim McGarry. Some American TV networks are speeding up repeats of shows such as Seinfeld and Friends by as much as 7.5% so that they can squeeze in more ads. 
My favourite sitcom in all the world, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which just started airing series 11, cleared a man of murder when footage of a Dodgers game taken by the show proved he was at the game and had an alibi for the crime. He spent nearly five months in jail before he was released and was awarded $320,000 in a police misconduct lawsuit. And finally, the dog in the sitcom Frasier received more fan mail than any of the human actors. <laughs> yeah, um, this is my laptop, which for some reason I couldn't get you my Zoom. Anyway, how are you, Kelly? Tim McGarry is the self-described Alan Partridge of Northern Ireland, a massive household name over there due to his starring role in the hit sitcom Give My Head Peace. He is a member of the comedy group Hole in the Wall Gang and hosts the weekly BBC topical panel show The Blame Game. He is a humanist and in 2016 was appointed a patron of the British Humanist Association and Northern Ireland Humanists. Before we kick off, I think it's the first time I've done this, I am going to give a strong language warning. We don't often drop the C-bomb in Namaste, motherfuckers, but it is dropped a few times towards the end of this episode. So be warned, just in case you're listening to it with young or impressionable ears. I'm sorry, mum and dad. But in our defence, it is used in the very sweetest of ways. Tim and I talked about smoking, acting, politics, religion, stand-up, writing, law, humanism and Neil Delamere. But I started by asking him about venues reopening and the fancy gala night he had just performed at the night before at the Waterfront Hall in Belfast. Fancy thing was about 10 times far fancier than I thought it was. It was hosted by Patrick Keaty and we had Ash and we had poetry readings. It was a mega, mega gig. We had the Ulster Orchestra. We had flipping opera. I was in a dressing room with two stars from the Derry Girls and a, and a guy who plays Ullian Pipes and a, and a novelist. It was fucking mega. I bet they were delighted to have the great Tim McGarry sharing a dressing room with them. They, they were very thrilled. Big night for them. Very thrilled, yeah. We've been gigging. God, it's been a good few months back here. And I def- I was talking to, I did a gig with um, Ardlo Hanlon headlining last night. I was emceeing um, a gig in Canterbury. And he was saying that he's done so few gigs. Like he said, he's done three this week, which is a, almost a kind of record. And that he's so not in the habit of it. And he said, you know, when he comes over here and does gigs, there's mixed bills like there were last night and we're all quite slick because we're gigging five nights a week again. And he said, I'm just not getting my head. So he was like really pacing around beforehand. And, and he said, I'm just like not at my, I mean, he seemed amazing. He blew the roof off, but he said, I'm just not at my complete relaxed. I'm sort of spitting on my words a bit. It doesn't feel fluid yet. I don't know how it is for you getting back into it. I think he's quite a nervous performer. And I mean, I mean that, and I've done a couple of things where he's always pacing up and down back backstage and very nervous. Where somebody like Neil Delamere, who is quite sickening, and you could literally be having a chat with Neil backstage and go, da 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 da, and his name would be a nice, and he'd go, give you a minute here, Tim, and walk on the stage, which drives me nuts. Whereas Ardell and, and the man, I, I need a bit of space and time to, you know, get my head together and pace up and down and be a bit nervous about things. Are uh, you a bit of a pacer then as well? I, I, yeah, well, even at corporate stuff, you know, I, I, they offer you dinner all the time, and I wouldn't necessarily eat it. I would kind of go, no, I could just leave me alone, give me, a, give me a bit of space, give me a bit of time to myself. 
four or five. Someone said to me that doing the dinners, because my inclination was not to do the dinners and just do the speech, but actually what I find good about the dinners is you just get a bit of a read of the room and sometimes you'll get something quite funny from somebody at the table. The good news I have, because the world is still somewhat sexist sometimes, is that when I'm at the top table, people assume I'm someone's wife or girlfriend or something to do with the event organisation. So nobody thinks I'm about to be the after-dinner speaker. So they speak completely freely, don't even usually ask me who I am or what I'm doing there. And I get to hear all the stuff and not really say a word. And then I've got some really good ammunition afterwards. So I tend, partly it's a free meal and partly it means I can have a pop at the CEO with some inside knowledge. Well, it's been bad for my health as well, those corporate gigs with smoking. It's quite useful if you go out and catch a fag off some guy. Oh, yeah. You know, all the bells out there. And uh, sometimes when I, I sneak a wee fag and I go out and catch a fag off people and they go, oh, you're not off a telly and all. But you also, you get you get the proper story of who's a wanker and who's, the, you know, who not to have a go up and who's who's really up for it and all that sort of stuff, you know. You know so yeah. when your wife's like, please, Tim, could you stop smoking? You're like, sweetheart, this is what pays for the food on the table. Do you like this roof over our head smoking? has brought us that <laughs> get a hobby I, <laughs> yeah kids anyone listening start smoking it'll it'll pay it'll pay the mortgage I did um, my first my actual first gig back I've just remembered talking about Neil Delamere my first gig back after lockdown was with Neil we both did a gig down in Brighton and it was it was at the Warren in Brighton do you do the Brighton Fringe ever no I don't do I don't travel very well across the water uh, in, fact, in terms of you, you physically or your comedy? No, my comedy. Uh, I see. I kind of came out in a, a different way, I'm, and the stand-up's kind of the, an adjunct to the other stuff I do. I had a sitcom. We were a very successful sitcom here, so that I, I know all about it. it. Give my headpiece. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of only started doing stand-up late on, as because uh, give my headpiece at one stage was so successful, we were literally being asked to open supermarkets and things. And people would go, oh, there's the guy out of the whole wall gang, hand you a microphone and go, give us some of your crack. And you go, what the fuck? You mean crack? What? what? <laughs> you mean a script? So just for people listening who don't know the kind of heritage of that. So Hole in the, Hole in the Wall Gang, tell yeah. us about what, what that was, is. Uh, well, I, I, I met two other guys called Damon Quinn and Michael McDowell uh, a long, long time at university. Uh, and we became, uh, we, we did sketch shows on radio and uh, bits and pieces on television. And then we eventually came up with this sitcom called Give My Head Peace. Uh, purely Northern Ireland sitcom based in Northern Ireland, well, about Northern Ireland characters. And it's a larger than life. It's a kind of a mix of, no, some people compare it to Mrs. Brown's voice, which is slightly unfair. There's more satire in our show and there's yes. more politics in our show. But it is larger than life, and it's you know there's it's like Simpsons feel of it. Anything can happen, and we can go anywhere with it. But it was a massive, massive success called Give Me Head Peace. It's actually still running after uh, the first series was started in 1998, and you know we I think we've done I think we counted we've done about 96 episodes so far, and we're making another four at the minute. But Give Me Head Peace is a massive success locally. I mean, it's purely local. It's for local people. It doesn't travel well. It's not even a Derry Girls in that, you know, people outside can, can you know, get a grip of it. There's an awful lot of politics to it. There's an awful lot of local references and local political references. So it yeah, I've watched it. It's, it's, and it's BBC Northern Ireland, right? It's a yeah. show for BBC yeah. Northern Ireland. And it, it is funny because doing, um when I did the, 
blame game with you. The, and actually, just just to explain what that is, it's easy. It, the easiest way to describe it, but it's not quite fair to it to do it is to say it's a kind of um, BBC Northern Ireland version of "Have I Got News for yeah. You," but it, which I guess is the simplest way. Apart from you don't have a rotating uh, panel. There's four. There's four of you, and then you. Well, nowadays there's three of you, and then you have one rotating. Is that right? Yeah. Well, no, we're we're, we're uh, Jake has actually left us now, so we're getting we're getting a new. Uh, we think we're getting a new permanent seat there. Uh, which is uh, Diona Doherty. Uh, okay. Here, she's going to be the. She's going to. Jake has left the show, so we're we we have a permanent uh, four people, and then we have a guest as well, usually from England, but not always. Yeah, because I and what I was going to ask you because it's quite people often underestimate. I think with the blame game, it's one that when you look at the kind of hierarchy for comics starting to get television, we we often get the blame game before we get. Have I got news for you, or would I lie to you, or those kind of shows. And it's easy to think because for English comedians, it's one we might get before we're as big a name to think, oh, well, you know, this will be a doddle. I don't need to do my research. And luckily, having got to know, um, having met you before and having met um, Neil before I did it and having been on other panels with Neil Delamere and he's like a panel show bloody ninja. And I was and I realized that the quality of what you guys do, because you're on it week in, week out, it's an incredibly high quality and you guys, and it's so, it's it's an impossible one to busk as an English guest, I reckon. It is very, very difficult for an English one. We, we have, I mean, we're quite proud. We, we have John Bishop's first ever television show was The Blame Game. We had Michael McIntyre on the radio show before he was Michael McIntyre. We had Sarah Milliken on the radio show before she was Sarah Milliken. Uh, and we had Kevin Bridges very early on on the blame game, very early in his career. So we've had people like that on Calibre like that. But you're right. You had Kelly Beaton on it just before the lockdown. That was a big oh, night. Oh, sorry. That, no, that's, <laughs> that, 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 that's the BAFTA winning. Uh, exactly. Everyone's talking about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later in the bar. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. Now, sometimes... The, the thing about the blame game is you're right. It's a bit northern. It's a bit uh, have I got news for you? But also, it's it's quite local as well. There's local reference, and we have, we play it normally in front of an audience of 300 people. We were there in the studio, 300 people, uh, and they like their local references. So sometimes it's difficult for an English comedian to come over and you know immediately uh, get in tune. Some uh, I'll be perfectly blunt. Some English comedians, like you say, kind of were a bit blasé and thought, oh, well, this is just local. It'll be easy peasy, and then found out that we are quite good because we have done it for a long time as well. And we have a great relationship among ourselves and we have a great relationship with our audience. And that's, you know, vital. so I think it, to be fair, it is very difficult for someone to come from the outside and just plank themselves in and arrive and go, you know, take over the show. But I mean, somebody like yourself, I think you'll agree. Hopefully you will agree that we were, we're quite generous. We want the guests to be funny. We want you to, we want to support you and we want you to, to, to do well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll say that, you know, for the purposes of the podcast. No, you were really, you were really nice. And it's, it, there's a, it's funny coming into a sort of room like that beforehand where you guys work together really closely. And at that point, Jake was still doing it. So four guys who do it all the time, you hosting it, three regular panelists, and then one guest. And I think two things really helped. One was the fact that, yes, I think the producer, Jackie, really wants the guest to succeed as well. So there's a lot of prep in terms of at least knowing these are the themes. What might you want to speak to that might suit your comedic style? But the thing you actually you told me, which was a brilliant thing before I went on and you literally said it like five minutes before we started. But you said, oh, I'll do a bit of warm up, just kind of say a few things to the audience. But you said you don't have to. But sometimes it helps if 
the guest comedian actually does a bit of work beforehand with the audience, a bit of warm up. And I was so grateful you said that. I could have done with you saying it half an hour earlier, but doing that meant that the, I felt that they'd slightly bought into me and they were like, OK, we think you're a bit funny and we're willing to listen to you. And it gave it gives your voice a chance to be heard in the room. And I think that was really good advice. Otherwise, I think I could have just been a bit of a wallflower. Apologies for not giving you more advice. <laughs> Normally because most of the comedians go, get the fuck out there. What? <laughs> do warm up for you as well but no you're right it, it does a lot of people it does genuinely help them to, they get the uh, push their confidence and say oh yes this audience know who I am and we'll get a laugh out of it you know and I think it's also being having kind of sat in edits for panel shows you know in my whole career working in telly I've sat I, I know that you've just got to give the production team something to work with and that obviously includes being heard and saying stuff and if you don't get your voice heard then it's pretty hard to look come out of the edit well so I, I think doing that actually is a really good way to wet your whistle before you actually start on the panel because everyone in the room is expecting your voice to be heard and you've sort of got the confidence to think you're allowed in the room. From one season I got sacked uh, I basically they, they bucked me out did they, they? Uh, when did this happen Tim well I, I, I you know I, it's, I don't want to bring up painful memories but it was the 23rd I want of- you to that makes this podcast worth listening to so go go deep 20, 23rd of April 2011 um, okay so no, you don't remember the date or anything uh, half three uh, Jackie give me the call um, <laughs> and uh, the, the BBC wanted to mix it up a bit uh, and they felt that it was getting a bit stale and that it would be best if I, I was uh, rested for a bit and they were going to rotate the panel hosts. What like have I got news for you? Exactly, which is great, yeah. except, you know, and no harm to your listeners. Your listeners are probably going, who the feck is this fella from Northern Ireland? I've never even heard of him. You know, I'm like an Alan Partridge. I'm very big in Northern Ireland and I'm nowhere else outside Northern Ireland. But the thing is, with Northern Ireland, it's a small place. It's only 1.8 million people. So rotating a host on a massive show like if I get news for you in London, slightly easier than rotating a host. Yeah, you'd have had to use the whole population in time, wouldn't you? Just start going out to someone, farmer, news agent, get everyone on. Yeah, pick anybody up off the street, you know. Now we can't, I think we had Eamon Holmes, we had Patrick Kilty, uh, they had... And that was it? <laughs> I think did one. <laughs> did he? Wow, you guys were going both. Was it after that one that you got asked back? Yeah, funny enough, yeah, because uh, <laughs> he, uh, he he has a connection to Northern Ireland. I think he, he some connection with Northern Ireland. Number number one. Uh, but yeah, I think to be fair, I think the the other people on the panelists who. Um, Neil Delamere was very funny when he, when he, when I, I got the sack, he rang me up and he basically says, Tim, very sorry to hear that. BBC are cunts. I'm still doing the show, though. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like our friend Neil. That's exactly like that friend. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry for your trouble. I'm still doing it and uh, all the best. <laughs> So did a series without me, and um, I'm delighted to say that it, it went so well that I got asked back a couple of years later, about a year and a half later. Okay, do you remember the date and the time you were asked back as well? Oh, Have you got that? The Gavin Freud day, the day I danced <laughs> Jake outside the BBC? No, not at all. <laughs> and do you intend, because the thing I, I guess, coming into it from the angle you came into it from, so you said you didn't come into all of this as a comedian, but when you were in the Hole in the Wall gang, What's interesting about that, and again, I'm very mindful of the fact that I'll I'll get some of the nuances of this wrong, despite having done my research for this and for the blame game. But it struck me doing my research on you and seeing what the blame game is and what you stand for and what the sitcom's about, that there wasn't really anyone else doing what you guys were doing. So in the 80s, the Hole in the Wall gang were talking about Northern Ireland politics, talking about the Troubles doing material that was completely rooted in political reality. And that wasn't really 
going on anywhere else at the time, was it? Well, congratulations. Your, your research is perfect. You're absolutely right. Uh, there was a lot of, there, there has been a history of sort of comedy about Protestants and Catholics in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, but once the troubles broke out in the late 60s, early 70s, that kind of died away. There was a famous comedian called Jimmy Young who used to, was a theatre comedian and he did a lot of stuff about politics. But he wasn't satirical. He didn't really, you know, talk about politics. He died in 1974. Between the early 70s, right up until the early 80s, there was no comedy in Northern Ireland about Northern Ireland. Any famous comedians immediately went across the water. Uh, anybody who had any, you know, sense who got out of Northern Ireland. There were no venues as well to play, which is the problem because the IRA kept blowing them up. Uh, there was no theatres. The, the, the Grand Opera House was was dormant for about, you know, about 15, 20 years, I think. Were, so there was nowhere to play anyway until sort of the mid to late 80s when we come on the scene. Patrick Keelty was, was round about the same time as us as well. Patrick was is, is a Catholic from uh, a place called Dundrum in County Down, and his dad was basically a, a random kind of uh, any Catholic will do was shot. Uh, wow yeah because I've heard well I'll say I've heard Patrick talk about that and that I guess he's a kind of high profile person who's talked about what's gone on talked about the politics of that taking what seems to be some risks in regard to that kind of material but you guys were doing that at the same time as Paddy or were you doing it before he started doing that before that we we did stuff on uh on stage before that um I, I'm, I'm, I'm 57, so my, we came about, we, I met these two guys at university and our background was sort of Monty Python, uh, have I got news, not have I got news for you, sorry, uh, not the nine o'clock news, yeah. you know, 70s young ones sort of stuff. So yeah. initially we were, we're, when uh, we started doing stuff, we, we, we were doing like English accents and doing sketches in English accent and Python-esque stuff. We were and was that the, because you were influenced by those English, that, that English comedy or because you thought you needed to do that to be heard? A bit of both because it was the comedy we grew up with. Um, Northern Ireland's a divided society, as you know, but the, the, the issue is all about identity. But culturally, you know, even a lot of Catholic nations are British in terms of their culture. So we'd be watching... Uh, we were watching British television. We'd be watching uh, British football teams. We were reading British newspapers, watching the BBC. And the big influence was thing in comedy terms was you know the big comedy shows of the late seventies. Faulty Towers was my you know was my go to program. Monty Python, The Holy Grail, all that sort of stuff was stuff that I we all absorbed. There was not really an Indigenous Irish comedy scene as such until sort of the mid to late eighties. So we first started. We were doing really bad accents and and you know sub Python stuff. And there was only, we went to Edinburgh. We used to do write sketches about politics, but we were a bit scared about it. And then we went to the Edinburgh Festival as kind of a bunch of students, made dicks of ourselves. We were fucking awful, dreadful. Uh, but there were, there were a couple of guys who were involved in Edinburgh who came to see our show and said, guys, some of the stuff is actually quite good. When you write about what you know and write about your, your, your own situation, uh, then there's a lot more bite there and there's a lot more satire. And we came back and kind of regrouped and said, right, what are we going to talk? We're going to talk about politics and what's outside our front door and what's happening and what everybody else is talking about. Uh, and then we we basically took off from there because when we started in theatre and radio, uh, started in theatre really, and there was a kind of war weariness by the mid to late 80s where people in Northern Ireland were fed up with the troubles. It seemed to be going absolutely nowhere, but nobody was talking about it in a comedic way. Very, very. So we, when we first did it, there was a kind of release or a relief that finally someone was having a go at the Provos, having a go at Ian Paisley and the DUP, having a go at the British government, but doing it in a way that was funny uh, and that was different and was, was saying what other people were thinking and saying it out loud and saying it in a way that was, you know, because you're laughing, you know, you can't, it's hard to get angry when you're laughing. 
you can get away with a lot, I think, can't you? If you do it well in comedy, there's a there's a lot you can get away with. And it also has the beautiful effect of really undermining arseholes, doesn't it? I think if you look at what's gone on in the Trump administration, the lovely backlash of people. I mean, I, I one of the things that got me through the whole pandemic and the Trump years was watching all the late night US shows like oh, Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers. Yeah, Stephen Colbert's. Do you, are you a Colbert fan? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Oh, yeah. I love Colbert. Yeah. I love him, too. I used to work with, when I worked at Comedy Central, we did the um, Colbert Report for, for years. Oh. So, I, I, yeah, so I worked with him and absolutely loved him then. And You worked with Stephen Colbert? Wow. Yeah, I did. I did, Tim. I know. Look, at, look how the mighty have fallen. So uh, now I'm going around doing gigs for beer vouchers in Camden pubs. But, um, but yeah, I, so I don't know, you like me then. I'm guessing you watched... Par doesn't like mockery. You know, and the you know, mockery of is is a, is a quite a powerful weapon. You know, there there are no comedy clubs in North Korea for for a reason. You know, the the, the great leader does not like to be undermined and mocked and told that he's not a great leader. Or people, yeah, and comedians like to live, so and, that'd be a risky thing. Paramilitaries re, re, rely on terror and intimidation and stuff like that. And when you say decades as well, and they're you know. Not, and you can say that they're wrong and all of that. The way that they're, of course, it, with, with Give Me Head Peace, we're, we're really pleased with it. You can't be didactic about these things. You can't, you know, be lecturing people and go, listen, paramilitaries are bad and shooting, you know, you know, hating people because of their religion is a bad thing. You just got to illustrate it through, through through the work and have fun at it and enjoy it. And people will, you know, hopefully get the message through through what you do without being overly, you know, hectoring or lecturing about it. It's a lovely counterpoint. I mean, I guess we have the MASH report here and we and have I got news for you, but there isn't something like those US monologues. I found that so reassuring throughout those years to have that voice represented in such a funny way and to realise there's this whole movement that like us watching it or like most of us watching it, we're like, how the hell is this happening? But yeah. seeing people intelligently taking the piss out of it and having that opinion so beautifully, humorously articulated, I found hugely reassuring over here and wished we had something like it. It was, I mean, uh, John Stewart before him as well was like a comfort blanket, but yeah, uh, Colbert definitely was, you know, a, a voice of, of sanity. I, I just, I suppose I slightly worry in that, you know, we're, we're only being watched by people who agree with them. I mean, I thought that's the, the diffusion of American television, you know, it wasn't getting through to the right people. You're preaching to your, to the converted already. The converted. You're talking to anybody who was, you know, not, you know, a, a liberal and not going to be a Democrat and was going to hate Trump in any event. And yeah, I, I guess they didn't have a big Republican yeah, audience base, but it's still, I, I think if you look at the stuff and the stuff that you were doing, because given the, the population in terms of the number of, of people, in terms of the audience you had, I guess the stuff that you guys were doing was cutting through to a pretty broad percentage of the population I again doing some research for the podcast the the, the sitcom is get well it was was outstripping East End was getting more than 50% share is that right so we're absolutely getting getting a huge uh, audience share we're getting 50 60 percent in the one where we most every single year where they're, they're the most popular locally made program on BBC Northern Ireland and we you know we, we, we do big things like police standards and things like that um and the, the, part of the problem with that, because Northern Ireland is a divided society, the BBC had to be clear that it was going to attract an audience from both sides, you know, and that had to be, that had to be a, a, you know, a, so that's why it's a broad-based sitcom. It can actually be read, and, and, and a lot of children like our sitcom because they're, they're larger-than-life, you know, some people might argue two-dimensional characters, but they're <laughs> larger-than-life characters. Uh, so kids like them, they're cartoonish, 
But also when you have a cartoon, you can also say things that you wouldn't necessarily say. It is very cool. I was thinking I was watching clips of it. And actually, I think you told me when we went for a drink after the blame game, that is, is it true that you met some... Um, you met some soldiers. He said they'd watch clips of it. As t- tell me that story. Yeah, there was. was uh, we were in a bar in Belgium. <laughs> As you do. A couple of English guys uh, come over and said, "You guys are from the from the blame game." And they said, "Yeah, oh sorry, from the from Give Me Head Peace." I said, "Yeah, how did you know Give Me Head Peace?" He said, "We served in Northern Ireland." I said, all right, really, you served in Northern Ireland, so you, you watched Give Me Head Peace? He said, no, 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 we were given videos of Give Me Head Peace before we were, when we, before we were, we were, we were sent to Northern Ireland. I said, well, what, just as entertainment? He said, no, 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 it was part of the training. <laughs> what? <laughs> part of the training, this is, what, this is what we're like over there. This is what they expect. <laughs> this is the sort of nutbags you will be dealing with. Namaste, Watching again, it's really hard for me to get the the nuances for sure because it's not the world I'm I, I'm from. But from a comedic perspective, having worked with comedy shows my whole life, exactly what you say that cartoonish thing. So you've got the kind of tomfoolery, the larger than life. You've got this framework that's really easy to grasp, and anyone would be able to understand the dynamics within the family, within the social groups. It, it's easy to understand those dynamics, not necessarily why they're as they are. But the bit that's beautiful that you do have in cartoons is the fact that you can get in whatever messages you want to via the form of satire. And is that was there a fear then when you first were doing that kind of stuff before the sitcom and when you guys were just kind of pissing around and then decided to go political? There must have been a fear that there was genuine risk attached to that, given the time period, wasn't there? Absolutely. The first few times we did sketches in the, in the there's a wee theatre, sadly gone now, called the Group Theatre, which was an amateur theatre attached to the Ulster Hall. Lovely 250-seater theatre, but you could hire it as amateurs for literally, you know, 50 quid, 250-seater theatre. And we started doing stuff, and we were, we were kind of genuinely worried about, you know, the, the public reaction, because this time... In the mid to late eighties, you know, people are still getting shot. The situation, yeah. you know, is, is, it's got another ten years to run, uh, and people take themselves very seriously in this country. But <laughs> as my late father used to say, the problem in this country is that they, they, there's no sense of their own ridiculousness. You know, we 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 can't bear a grudge and a grievance greatly, and you need to be slightly careful. Uh, you need to be very careful not to be perceived as you know politically coming down on one side or the yes. other, or you will immediately lose half your audience and immediately be condemned. But there was a risk attached. We felt there was a risk attached. But in fact, as I said earlier, what we found was that audiences, well, there was a huge release and kind of, thank God, somebody's finally doing this, you know, and, you know, arguably our comedy wasn't as good as uh, as other comedy, but there was a kind of, finally somebody had, not, nobody's done this for 15, 20 years since, as I said, Jimmy Young died in the, in the mid, early, the mid 70s. So nobody had been doing it for a long time, and finally, you know, this was this was people saying things that we we're 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 thinking. But there was a slight risk element. I mean, paramilitaries are not nice people, uh, but I think what happened earlier. Might call the episode that paramilitaries are not nice people. Not <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Bad lads among them. Um, <laughs> they. Uh, so, so we're always we're always under a, a little bit of felt a, a little bit of threat, but as I say, the audiences kind of kind of brought us through, and we felt that once we'd started doing this thing, you kind of got a reputation for having a go at everybody, and that reputation was one that we we wanted to enhance and wanted to keep, and 
again, it, it's the method of doing it. It's how you do it. And you can do it in a way that is appealing to a broad section of the, the audience uh, and do it in a way that is non-threatening, that is non-intimidatory, that is non-kind of... Uh, it's not patronizing as well. I mean, it, it, and it's also fun. To, you can watch it on a level and just go, I, even whatever, whatever your politics, even your strong part, this is just a good laugh. You know, and a laugh's a laugh no matter what. And That's for sure. Laugh. And you don't, so it's not about you going, we'll leave this group alone because it's too risky. It's you no. going, we'll go in on everyone and then no one can say but, that we're yeah, having favourites. artificially balanced. We never went, oh, we've made two jokes about Sinn Féin. We better make two jokes about Ian Paisley. We never did that, but... There was always a, an overall feel of balance in the show. So one of the compliments we get all the time from people nudges and go, listen, what I like about you is you have a go at both sides and you, you don't let anybody off the hook and everybody gets a touch. Uh, and that, you know, that, that's kind of, you, you've seen it, you know, there's a loyalist character. And some people say the loyalists are funnier than others. Uh, so the Uncle Andy side of the house sometimes get yep. more laughed on the other side of the house. But that it, it, it kind of balances itself out overall, and the people just go, "Well, it's wacky and it's funny." And there's, I mean, there's a lot of slapstick as well and stupid stuff in it that that covers the other the other bits of it. You other. can see the sort of forty towers implements, the kind of uh, yeah, that that sort of idea of kind of slapstick. It's really easy to grasp what the kind of overall caricature is, but then something quite subtle goes on within the caricature. It's got that sort of that influence, hasn't it, from the kind of start of sitcom, really. Uh, one of the, the best compliments we got from a, from a producer from early on when the, the series was was mega successful, he said, these are stupid cartoon, larger-than-life characters, but there's a truth to every single one of them. There are people like uh, the, the, the sectarian bigot Uncle Andy. There are people like Da, who is, you know, a, a dying-in-the-wheel dying Republican who claims to be, you know, far closer to the... The Willis's and the guns than he actually is, and it's basically yeah. there's a lot of idiot sons out there. So those relationships and those, those the, the politics behind all of that, those are real. Those things happen. They're exaggerations, obviously, and they're you know they're hyperbole, but there are there are grains of truth in them, and I think those are recognised by, by the, the certainly the population in Northern Ireland. And I guess it, it would never travel because the actual fundamental storylines and the backdrop is something that would, is not well understood outside Northern Ireland. Has it, have, has it tried to travel? Uh, well, I was talking to the Derry girls yesterday, <laughs> and those feckers have gone global. <laughs> we can't, no, to be to be absolutely clear, that give me head with peace. With the 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 commission was specifically for a Northern Ireland audience. We have tried, and Derry girls was not. So I guess there was a whole different brief. We, we were specifically saying we're, we're we're aiming for a Northern Ireland audience. We want the Northern Ireland audience. We'd love to get network, but we we were free to write about politicians who we knew nobody in England would care about or recognise or any shape or form. Uh, so it was specifically for, for a Northern Ireland audience. We have creeped across the border. So that when it was, the show was massive, there's a lot of, we had a lot of fans down south. We have quite a few fans in Scotland as well, because Scotland kind of gets us. Um, but no, it, it hasn't, it certainly hasn't gone as big. If it is big, if it was as big in Northern, in the rest of the UK as it was in Northern Ireland, I wouldn't be talking to you, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm expecting to tell you that I'm very busy. <laughs> you say that. I get some very big names on this podcast, no. Tim. I'd like you to know. <laughs> I always talk to you, Kelly. You know. <laughs> and we have the, and we have the humanist link, which I do want to mention in a minute, but I was just going to ask you before I do. So in terms of the actual, actually putting your head above the parapet and saying things where there's genuine danger attached, which for lots of us, the biggest danger is people will tell us to piss off stage and throw a beer in our face. That's not real danger. Have there been any times in your career where you've you've actually felt in danger? Uh, there's a couple of gigs where people have not got the joke and have been quite aggressive in telling us that they didn't get the joke. 
there's a lot of stuff where there was a lot of stuff early on. We we got we had we had a particular problem for a sketch in TV that was misinterpreted, and then we had a campaign against us. And we we, we allegedly insulted a, a, a senior Republican in a way that was deemed inappropriate, and we lost a lot of gigs over it. And we, there were letters to the paper saying that we were disgraced to the to uh, Republicanism. We would attack this this uh, person, uh, and we lost loads of gigs. And there were really letters and stuff like that. There were a lot of complaints early on on when the, when the series started but what happened was it got so big that people then kind of the, the politicians or people who didn't like us kind of backed off and went look there's no point me saying that this isn't funny but or i hate it because it was getting so doing so well in the ratings and was clearly cross community as well uh, but there were still a lot of people who don't like us there were people who, who got very upset as well saying we couldn't make jokes about the troubles because people were being shot and you couldn't tell a joke about that, you know. And as one of my colleagues, Damon Quinn, said, well, that, that screws up MASH then, doesn't it? You know, they yeah. <laughs> the sitcom set in the Korean War, doesn't it? You know, or lots of other comedies. Uh, I mean, you play the MASH card, really. There's nowhere to go from that. It's game yeah, on, isn't it? Exactly. And I remember when we I worked on South Park um, from pretty near the beginning, of, you know, when it started over 20 years ago. And there were lots of obviously highly controversial episodes, but the only one where we actually came under proper threat was the Prophet Muhammad episode, which was, I don't know, nearly 10 years ago. And we had to have police protection at the London office, at the New York office, and there were proper threats to staff, to the guys, Matt and Trey, the creators. And it was the only time that I've ever worked on a show and thought, okay, there's this is properly unleashing something that could be dangerous, and that was the same time as the Charlie Hebdo, um, you know, murders, and uh, it, and it was suddenly seeming to be really risky time to be getting into anything that was satirical and political in a way that I guess you guys had as a potential risk when you started out, albeit that you managed to do it and nothing untoward happened. No, no, no nothing untoward happened. There was a bit of there, there was a bit of political. Uh, uh, bit of noise on the edges and stuff like that, and the BBC were were you know had letters and complaints to them. But to be fair to the BBC, they stuck to their guns, and the BBC were have been very good to us, you know. And they they took a risk with these things because sitcoms, and especially in a small region like Northern Ireland, as I say, they're not cheap, are they? Sitcoms, you don't no, just bag a couple of them out as a risk. Ours are, ours is very cheap compared to a network sitcom, but yeah. but it's still not cheap compared to a panel show, no, right? No, absolutely not. No, no, and so they 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 did take a big risk, and they they deserve a lot of credit for that. Is it true that they also took a big risk on letting you be the first person to say fuck on the BBC in Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, they, well, they made me record it twice without the fuck. Uh, it's one of my... With the fuck and without the fuck. Yeah, yeah, that was the pilot episode, Two Ceasefires and a Wedding, that we did in 1995. Great um, title, Two Ceasefires and a Wedding. I mean, title alone. No, that's it, yeah. I, I, I'm very pleased I came up with that. I also came up with Give My Head Peace, which I'm very proud of. But Yeah, I'm, very good. Two other guys who I write with, uh, and we, we sit in a room, and, you know, we have threesome part, writing partnerships quite odd. I do stuff on my own, obviously, the blame game and stand-up and stuff, but we write as a, as a threesome. Threesomes are always odd. There's usually someone left out, Tim. So, yeah, the writing partnership, I imagine, or a writing uh, triumvirate, it must be tempting for there to be a dynamic where where somebody's kind of left out in the cold, or does it not work like that for you? We've had all our fuck you conversations and you're a wanker and you're no good and that. We've had all those very early on and we're kind of, 
we, we've got to the stage now where, you know, we, the early days we used to count, I wrote more jokes than you, and now we don't do that anymore. We're, we're, we're kind of, people can have an off day. We, 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 the, the great thing, we can be quite prolific. We can write a, a, an episode of Give Me Head Peace in, you know, four or five days. We put our minds to it, you know. Uh, and we used to write a series, in a, you know, in a couple of months, a six-part series in a couple of months. Because even when somebody has an off day, you know, there's two other people to pick up on it. You also get instant editing, which, you know, single single writers on their own don't get which is people go on hang on a minute that's a good idea but when you take it abc don't go down that route of why but certainly as as, when i write stuff on my own on on stand-up and stuff you you can end up writing an idea that you think is hilarious and spending ages on it and then you show it to somebody else and go that's crap when you do usually it's when we show it to an audience and we get the immediate feedback that's crap and you're like oh shit right 700 of you don't like that I'll try something else how do you find writing them because you've got into stand-up via a different route to lots of us start in stand-up and then get into telly and acting and other things and you did it the other way around and you're I've seen you do stand-up you're a great stand-up how do you find that in terms of creating material and, and that as a bit of a different craft uh, it's a totally different craft. Um, yeah. uh, that's why, I, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't false modesty. I could never be on the panel of the blame game. I'm quite good at the chair, but I couldn't have, I mean, uh, Delamere and Colin Murphy and Jade are just so lightning fast and quick and their minds work. Yeah, yeah incredible. I need a bit of preparation. I, I, I'm joy stand-up. I do that. I've done a couple of solo shows, but mainly on themes. I've done one about Irish history and then one about politics and stuff. So I like a sort of beginning, middle and end, and then I'll write jokes around it. Uh, I, I do. I can do a sort of half hour, forty minute set, fairly all right. But I, I find it, a, I find it harder to write. I find it harder to write stand up than any other form. Um, Why is that? Do you think? I I think because there are ideas. There's so many ideas in stand up that you, you you throw stuff so many so much stuff up. When, when we when we're writing a sitcom, we now have the characters so well established. All we really need to do is, is get a plot together, and the right. dialogue flows. From those mm-hmm. characters because we know them so well and you play the characters right so you've got the advantage that yeah it helps to write and play we literally write them in the voices of, of the characters as well yes. so you, know, you know exactly what they're going to i know exactly how those characters are going to react to any given situation so it's the, yeah. the idea of giving them a, a, a situation i think there's so much stand-up now and there's so many good stand-ups now i go well why would i write a joke about bloody hgv drivers when you know Everybody's going to be doing that, and there are people who are cleverer than me and better than me and more experienced than me doing it. Um, but it's I, also doing it as much. I think part of the thing with doing what you do, as soon as people start, I was talking to um, to Ardlo Hanlon last night about the fact that he's because he doesn't. That's not all he does, stand up, um, yeah. and it has not what he's done for a, you know for a while. He does his big shows, but he'll have four or five years to work on one. If all you do is stand up then it's really easy to get really bloody good at stand-up. I say easy, it's not the easiest art form, but you can. You, that's all you're doing and you're on stage five, six nights a week. All you're doing is writing stand-up. As soon as you're doing other things, there'll be other stand-ups around who are sharper because that is all they're doing. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's one of the great joys of my job is the variety of it because we have a radio series, a perforated Ulster, that uh, it's a schedule. Perforated Ulster. What great titles you have. Uh, that, that, that we didn't come up with that. It was our producer come up with that. It's a brilliant title. It's a, a brilliant title. Yeah. It's been running for years and years, and we keep winning Celtic Media Awards for Best Radio Comedy for that. But it's, it's a schedule. And again, it's a different, different discipline entirely to stand up and a different discipline to uh, sitcom. 
Uh, and then I do another thing. I do a history show called The Long and the Short of It, which is another great title because the guy I do it with is four foot nothing. Uh, it's interesting. That's a radio. I, I saw that. So The Long and the Short of It, you six foot four and the other guy tiny. But interesting to have that title in what is essentially an audio form. Yes. <laughs> so, a visual joke depicted on the radio. We've been pitching it to television for five years. <laughs> it needs to be on television, really, but just to make sense of the title. We put it to the radio on the basis of the title of the show, and they went, that's a great title, because they knew the, the two of us went, yeah, we'll have that. What's it about? <laughs> <laughs> and is it in terms of the, um, I think you and I met, I interviewed um, Ed Byrne recently for this podcast, and he's a humanist. So we've talked about humanism on Namaste Motherfuckers before. But you are a patron of the Northern Ireland humanists, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And the Northern Ireland humanists, surprisingly, is the, the largest growing group of humanists in the whole of the UK. They had a, we, we had a mini conference there uh, about a month ago. Uh, celebrating the, uh, I think it's the 10th anniversary, or 5th anniversary of, of uh, Humanist NI, or, and we're, we're burgeoning, doing really, really well. Why? Because I imagine being, thinking about humanism in Northern Ireland specifically, you would think you would have your work cut out in terms of new recruits. So why is that, do you think? Why is it growing so quickly? I think partly because we're, we're becoming a far more secular society all over Ireland anyway. Uh, we, we lagged a bit behind the rest of the UK and things like uh, social issues such as homosexuality and all of that sort of stuff. And the Republic of Ireland and ourselves have kind of, you know, followed the lead of the UK and then going, oh, we need to catch up here. And we've caught up very, very quickly. I'm glad you've caught up on that. It's important. It's kind of important. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, but I mean, down south, I mean, the, the, the social changes there in the last generation are immense. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Pope coming to Ireland in 1979 and there were a million people came to hear him say Mass in Phoenix Park. Francis came a couple of years ago and, you know, he was lucky to get a, you know, a crowd of 100,000, you know, his gigs were way, way down. And he basically, he was, he was lectured by the Irish Taoiseach on, you know, the child abuse issues. Um, the Ireland just weeks beforehand had passed the, the abortion uh, referendum by a massive majority legalising abortion. The, the social changes have just been huge all across Ireland. And, you know, I think also the religion uh, had, didn't really help during the, the Northern Ireland conflict. The churches didn't cover themselves in glory in any shape or form. And then you had the, the, uh, the, the, the sex scandals as well. And I think more and more people, we, we, a lot of people in Northern Ireland would be, wouldn't be religious, but would still identify, you know, politically as Protestant, Catholic, nationalist, unionist. They still culturally, people are mm-hmm. both Protestants are still far more likely to be unionists, even though they don't go to church or wouldn't across the, third, the door of a church. Same with a lot of Catholics who don't go to church anymore, but they'd all see themselves as Catholic nationalists. Uh, and so it's a sort of culture, it's a sort of societal identification and a cultural identification. Yeah. This is my kind of tribe. This is where I belong rather than necessarily a church going identification yeah. at a certain point. And, and the middle ground is also getting bigger as well. The, the, the number of people who are prepared to say that they don't want to be labeled as Catholic or Protestant is growing massively as well. Uh, but we still have a society that is very divided. Our politics is very divided. Our, we, 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 you've been to, to Belfast. We've got peace walls down the middle of the of the city. We have areas where if you go to housing estates that will be literally 100% one religion. And uh, you have areas of Belfast where the population won't have have any contact whatsoever, virtually with their next door neighbours. You know, yeah. the it's really hard to describe unless you're there. Actually, it's yeah. really it is really hard to imagine, and it is 
much more um that there's much more subtle to it subtlety to it on the one hand that makes it harder for an outsider to understand but also that stark divide i mean i think the whole world has got a lot more divided or maybe we're just clearer about the divide in recent years there is that feeling that we're really seeing that now you know brexit was an example of that trump getting in was an example of that we're we're seeing a world that is sadly very very divided uh so it's maybe getting easier for us to all understand that we need to check our own privilege and realize that the voices we like to hear are not the only voices but there's something very specific I think uh, in Northern Ireland and in Belfast in general in terms of although I will say one thing that unites everybody Tim is when I've come over I've done a humanist gig with you there and I've done the blame game and both times when I was being driven from the airport into my hotel and I was asked what was I doing there and I said both times and your name came up and I have to say your name seems to be a big unifier people do seem to quite like you over there. That's very kind of you. Would you ring the BBC and tell them I'm making a pay raise? That's very. <laughs> you do, I do know that going into pubs with you in Belfast, you get a lot of love, and I'm sure I don't suppose you have to pay for any beers unless oh, you want no, to. No, no, don't have to pay for them. No, no, no. People in Belfast, <laughs> they are, they're very nice. We are very friendly and very nice. I mean, I keep telling people to, to come over here. For English people, I love. Honestly, I absolutely. I, I was due to come over again and do the Empire. I think Jackie had booked me to be on at the Empire just before lockdown. So sadly, I, in fact, I need to because that'll be open again now right the empire yeah, is it just opened literally uh last week i think and colin murphy did it did it opened it um uh with paul Sinner, i think we did did headlined it uh, it's we're, we're finally getting back to back to normal uh but on the atheism thing and the humanism thing i mean i you know i was quite initially wary of you know putting myself out and you know outing myself as a you know when did a, you become a humanist Oh well, well, I became a humanist when I was about fifteen. I thought this is just no. My family were very, very religious. I think actually, when they when I was confirmed into the Catholic Church, confirmation, and the the bishop knocks you on the shoulder, and the Holy Spirit is just supposed to come into you, and I just went, nah, this is nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> look around, and and yeah, it was quite unpopular because you know even when I was quite young, in fact, up, up until my twenties and thirties, I mean, the Catholic churches would have been bunged on a, on a on a Sunday. The churches are full. We used to get eighty five to ninety percent attendance. You know, the the population. Wow. Uh, and I, 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 you've heard me tell the story before. Even into my late twenties, early thirties, you had to lie to my mother and pretend I was going to mass because you took the you took the thing very very seriously. Uh, so I mean, up until the the, the, the so you were a secret non believer for a long time before you came uh, out. Well, yeah, most of my mates were non believers as well. It was kind of unstated but accepted. But you know, coming out and saying, "Look, actually, I I don't believe in any of this," and saying I'm a humanist and I'm proud to be a humanist and there is no God and you know I'll fight you if you think you know, I'll have a row with you if you think there is a God. Um, you know, because you know you're, you're right. You know, I, I have tickets to sell. You know, in Northern Ireland, we we're quite pl- we're quite fond of religion. Yes, have- exactly. That's why I'm really surprised when you say that statistic that that's the fastest growing part of the humanists yeah. that it's Northern Ireland. Well, we we have a lot. We have a lot of churches, but there are a lot of churches are emptying. There are a lot of churches that are have nobody in them anymore. They're very, they're in the Catholic Church around the corner from me, it's full of elderly people. Uh, things are changing, and they're changing very rapidly. It's, it's quite well, if they're full of elderly people, it will be changing rapidly at the moment because the elderly population is not faring so well at the moment. So yep. humanism will percentage-wise start to win out. I was really keen to get you on the podcast because you've always been such an absolute sweetheart um, on, on stage and screen and off. And is that part of your then, uh, uh, can you be a bit of a wanker or are you genuinely nice to everyone? Or do you just well, really think I'm nice? Well, my, my philosophy is uh, don't be a cunt. Uh, I yeah. 
you know, don't. That's what we'll call the episode. Don't be a cunt. Yeah, don't be a cunt. And you, you know when you are being a cunt, you know, and, and don't be. I, 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 kindness is important. Yeah, I, I think uh, my late father used to say, always have a sense of your own ridiculousness, which I, I think is a great rule to have. Uh, so don't get pompous. Part of the reason why uh, I'm not a total arsehole is because I do work in a partnership of three people. Uh, and we, we don't get above ourselves. My, my, one of the partners, uh, Damon Quinn, said the only thing that will break us up he says, is money and status. Uh, mm-hmm. Divide the money equally. Um, status in terms of uh, they don't they do a lot behind the camera. One of them produces and one of them directs. And you know I do a lot more in front of the camera in terms of the blame game and uh, profile and all that. Mm-hmm. So, but we're all of equal status in the group. And, also, and you all get paid the same. You all get paid the same. But also, you know, they, they will you know, tug me and say, stop being an arsehole if, I think I'm, if they think I'm being an arsehole. Uh, and I try not to. I also have a, a, a wife who, who, who very grounds me very well as well and a couple of children who take no interest whatsoever in my career and look at me like I'm a wanker. Which is, you know, it's, it's That's why we have children. It's a real leveller, I think, for all of us. To I think yours are a similar age to mine. And yeah, if ever you're getting a little bit too big for your boots, just even the look, the withering look in their eye, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's me back on the ground then. Namaste, motherfucker. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment, Tim? Um, I picked the, um, it was a strange moment because we weren't there, <laughs> but we won, the, we won an award in 1992 for the Perforated Ulster for the, the Sony Award. We won a gold Sony Award for uh, best comedy in the entire UK. And we literally had, it was our first ever radio series. When was this? What year was this? It was 1992. Mm-hmm. The programme was recorded in 1991. And it's slightly tinged with sadness because my father died in December 1991. He was he was a very humorous man and I get a lot of my comedy from him. He heard the series and he liked it. And then he went and died in December 1991. And then in April 1992, the series uh, won a, a Sony Award. And we beat we beat the likes of, uh, I, I think Steve Coogan was uh, was involved in the show. With, with, uh, the On the R was probably mm-hmm. 1992. So we beat a lot of big people. Well, we, did, we weren't even invited. We can't, we didn't know what it was. The BBC put it in. The producer went to the we went to the awards. The editor went to the awards. We we were we didn't even know who the award was. But then suddenly found out. Oh, hang on, this is quite a big deal. And it was that award that made us think. Hang on a minute. Maybe we're quite good at this. <laughs> maybe we are quite good at comedy. And we were all working as lawyers. I was a solicitor at the time. Uh, uh, oh, I didn't know you used to be a solicitor. Oh yeah, no, I was a solicitor. Yeah, I worked in private practice, and then I worked in the uh, equality law and discrimination law. Uh, for employment and sex discrimination. I'm an actually an expert. I used to be an expert on maternity rights and sexual harassment, but that's a different thing. But we, we, 1992 was the year we went, actually, we're quite good at this. And it took us two or three years before we went, we're going to go, have a go at this full time. But it was the moment that we went, okay, this is, you know, instead of being entertaining a few hundred people in, the, in a small theatre in Belfast, this could get bigger. So I think this is the first person who's picked a namaste motherfucking moment that they weren't actually at. So uh, it's good to have a life-changing moment you don't manage to turn up for. Exactly. Didn't even get the award either. (laughs) A cool customer you are. (laughs) This is great, but I'm not showing up. It's either really, really big names who don't bother showing up to pick up their awards or people who literally thought they had no chance and didn't know it was happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we won an award in 1995 as well for two ceasefires in a wedding. We won the Royal Television Society Award for. And best, that's a big one as well. Was well, for best regional program, and we were got absolutely fucking pissed. Had a great time, uh, and then I made a dick of myself with the late great Caroline O'Hearn, God love her, uh, who won an award for Mrs. Merton the same year. Yeah. 
and I'm a man. I, I'm a man who loved my Joy Division, loved Peter Hook. Yes. Don't read the tabloids that much. So I'm drunk with my Sony Award or with my RTS Award. Caroline Ahern is very drunk with her RTS Award at the bar. I go, Caroline, me and me. I'm hooky. I love hooky. I love Joy Division. She put the award down. She said, do not read the fucking papers. We're divorced. And in fact, it was all over the papers the week before that had a really horrible, bitter divorce. So I kind of took my award and slunk away like a man going, I just take my... Did she not see the funny side of, of that at all? And, did she not know you were a comedian? No, yeah, she probably didn't, to be honest. She just thought you were a random wanker. Random wanker with a, with a threatening Northern Ireland accent, you know. But an RT, any random wanker with an RTS award is a is a t- top league yeah. random wanker. And what's your, um, given you are a comedian. I thought she was brilliant. I love Caroline Ahern and every time I think about it, I'll just, anyway, sorry, what were you saying? No, I was going to say, you still cringe, do you, about that moment with her? Yeah, I just feel so, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of Carolina. I like you to and also we established you're not a cunt, so you wouldn't have tried to do that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, wasn't it was just, uh, I don't read the papers, I didn't read the, the tabloids. Accidental cuntdom, it's the absolute worst thing. <laughs> That's right, inadvertent country. Yeah, I mean, mindful country is what this whole podcast is about, but the inadvertent kind, terrible. And what is your favourite joke? My favourite one, when I was very young, my, my dad loved, uh, had a good sense of humour, and his favourite joke, and it always tickled me, was knock, knock. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yeah, knock, knock. Who's there? An Irish burglar. Hold on. Oh, I see. <laughs> when I was 12, I thought that was the best joke ever. And that's quite clever as well, because it just moves you. And you go, oh, right, the burglar's knocking the door. <laughs> and if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Well, I'll go back to don't be a cunt. Just be nice. Be kind. <laughs> That was the wonderful Tim McGarry. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try. And this week, in the spirit of Tim's enormous kindness, I am going to read a book that someone recommended to me at a gig last night called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And it's by Rutger Bregman. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrongly. As well as my friend telling me to read it, it apparently comes hugely, highly and happily recommended by Stephen Fry. And if I've understood correctly, it's a look at reframing historical events with the belief that human kindness and altruism can not only be a new way to think, but also the way we'll achieve true change in our society. Reminds me a bit of the Danny Wallace episode we did a while back. I'll I'll add a link to that in the show notes, as well as to the book Humankind. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much to listening and for supporting the podcast. We love, 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 love you. So please remember to love, love, love us and keep rating, reviewing and recommending us. We'll be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to broadcaster, columnist, comedian and ex-Labour Party senior advisor, Aisha Hazarika. I felt such a mixture of emotions afterwards. In fact, I remember when it all finished, ran to the fridge and literally like took out a bottle of wine immediately. I was like, I need it. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Thank you.
Hey, motherfuckers. Pod people.